Hello, and welcome to the Legal Concierge podcast hosted by Warner Lewis. Warner addresses a wide range of questions about legal situations and solutions that may apply to you. The information provided in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or medical advice of any kind. Warner Lewis is a trusted reliable resource to help you find the answers you need when you're not sure who to turn to if you have a legal question or need an attorney. Chat with Warner Live, every Tuesday on YouTube. And now, here's Warner Lewis. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to uh, the podcast, the Legal Concierge Podcast. This is episode number four. So excited to be getting to this point. Uh, there, you're going to see a little bit of a lag between the video and the audio, and we're going to get that problem fixed this week so that next week you'll see my lips move at the same time you hear my voice, okay? That's a, a nice improvement. We're taking little incremental steps towards improving the quality of the broadcast. So thanks again for your patience and your grace. Really appreciate it. I'm Warren Lewis, the founder and CEO of Life Planning, Inc. Uh, Life Planning, Inc. is an Arizona certified legal document preparer. Uh, we've been doing this for 27 years non-lawyers, but who are authorized by the Arizona Supreme Court for clients anywhere they may be. So I have clients all across the country. I'm able to provide clients with legal information as opposed to legal advice. That's one big distinction between my practice and an attorney's practice of law is that I don't give a legal opinion. I'm not entitled to one because I'm not a lawyer, but I can give legal information with impunity. So what that means to you as a potential uh, client of ours is that we're going to give you enough legal information to make fully informed decisions at every step along the process of creating wills and trusts or LLCs or more complicated uh, asset protection structures. So uh, that's one big difference. And I think it's actually an advantage for us and for our consumers, our clients, because you really understand what you're doing and why. And it gives you an opportunity to really participate uh, in the construction and the design and the content of your document. So that's a good thing. Now, the other distinction between what I do and what an attorney does is that uh, although there is confidentiality around our conversations, there is no attorney-client privilege, even though attorney-client privilege is a thing that's sort of a thing of the past almost in some respects, because we see more and more lawyers talking about their conversations with clients, oddly enough. But there is no attorney-client privilege in my client communications and my client uh, engagements. So I simply ask my clients, if you're going to break the law, just don't tell me, okay? And everybody laughs and we move on. So that's my business as, a, as an estate planner, as a certified legal document preparer under uh, Life Planning, Inc. This business, Legal Concierge, LLC, uh, our purpose and our mission is to provide consumers everywhere and anywhere, all across the country, with really important uh, and not often um, spoken of information regarding the law. Uh, the law around uh, state planning, asset protection planning, uh, running and maintaining uh, corporations and LLCs. We're going to be broadening uh, the scope of our conversations over the weeks and months to come to include taxation of these different uh, entities and, and what the tax outcomes can be, strategies for mitigating taxes. I mean, there's going to be some really, really juicy information. So we're starting with the basics and then we're going to um, broaden uh, our net, right, to include more and more topics that could be of great value to you. So stay tuned, okay? Um, today's topic are the top do's and don'ts around your LLC. So let's go ahead and jump in. Um, 
So we're going to start with creating a new LLC. And what are the steps that you want to take when creating a new LLC? So first of all, you check for name availability, right? You need to make sure that the name that you want is available to you through the Corporation Commission or through the, the Secretary of State of your state, depending on uh, uh, which organization, basically, which government agency um, receives that, that information. So in Arizona, it's the Corporation Commission. In other states, it's the Secretary of State. So keep that in mind. Check the name availability. And you might also want to check the availability of web addresses, of URLs, so that you can have your name, your company name, and your web address be as similar as possible. It's really tough these days to get them exactly the same. So for example, when we started Legal Concierge, uh, we got Legal Concierge LLC, no problem. Uh, but for the web address, we got legal-concierge.net. Okay, so pretty close. Would have preferred legalconcierge.com, but it wasn't available. So we went a few steps down the food chain and got something that would work for us. So that's something to think about. And get your uh, LLC name and the web address if you can. Then the filing method. Um, usually most corporation commissions and secretaries of state have an online capability where you can go on online and enter all of the information, make your payment. And that's really the most seamless streamlined way to get your LLC set up in my experience. You can also go down in person, but keep in mind, if you go down in person, don't go expecting to get advice or guidance from uh, the people who are assisting you at the window because they can't. They'll tell you right off the bat, look, I can't give you advice. You can, you can try to shape your questions so that it's more procedural than legal, um, but that's a bit of an art form. You may, uh, you may perfect that uh, after more than one visit to the window at the county recorder. Then you're also going to want to decide whether you have it um, uh, either expedited, your filing expedited, which means it goes more quickly, or just the normal uh, sort of mm, uh, train of events, right? Chain of events. So the normal, depending on the regular filing, can run somewhere between 21 and 45 days. Okay, so it's really a slow process. The expedited process, at least in Arizona with the Arizona Corporation Commission, probably six to eight uh, business days and it's accomplished. So the sooner the better, especially if you want to go to the bank and, and open up a bank account, for example, the banker is going to need to be able to go online to the Corporation Commission or the Secretary of State in your state and verify in public record that your entity is duly created, that your filings and your uh, organizational um, uh, articles of organization have been accepted and approved by the county recorder, not the county recorder, forgive me, the Corporation Commission. And so just keep that in mind. There's going to be a lag from the time that you uh, file the articles of organization for uh, the, um, uh, the articles of incorporation for a corporation. Uh, it's going to, there's going to be a lag between the time you actually do that and the time that a banker can look online and verify that you do indeed have an LLC or a corporation in place. Another common decision that needs to be made when uh, arranging and configuring your LLC is, do you do a member-managed LLC? or a manager-managed LLC. And typically, we prefer the manager-managed LLC because as opposed to the member-managed, the member-managed is the same as the owner managing the LLC as opposed to the owner appointing a manager who could be himself or herself, right? It could be the same person, but they wear a different hat. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather um, be taking day-to-day -day business decisions as the manager, not as the owner, because it's one step um, uh, further away from owner's liability, period. I don't know how, how uh, more simply to say that. So 
We prefer manager-managed uh, entities, and you can get advice on that from a lawyer locally or whomever you trust locally, but that's the way we go, manager-managed. And we do a lot of converting of structures, too, when we find a member-managed entity and we're doing some other changes like transferring ownership into a living trust uh, or something like that. We tend to go ahead and, and change that management structure from member-managed to manager-managed. Okay. And then once you get the articles filed, uh, you're going to want to memorialize your LLC by putting things in writing. Uh, we're going to see in just a little bit that in Arizona, you must have a copy of an operating agreement on file and available for people to see. So um, you got to start with that, right? The company record books include the, um, uh, uh, the operating agreement. Uh, ours include the organizational meeting minutes, which is that first meeting that breathes life into your LLC, which gives you written permission to have filed the articles of organization, uh, to name yourself as manager, to appoint a, a, a place of business, uh, to establish a place of business, to appoint um, a statutory agent, the person to whom notice of a lawsuit or other public notice is served. Um, so these are the things, you know, to open up a bank account, to obtain an EIN, uh, to issue stock certificates, uh, to establish your, um, your year end, whether you're an accrual or a cash basis type entity. So these are the things that are encompassed and laid out for you and for all to see in the organizational meeting minutes. Then you might have another meeting minute right, right away after the organizational meeting minutes, and that is giving yourself permission to obtain an EIN and a bank account. And once you do that, you're basically off to a good start. You've got all of your uh, corporate documentation in place, and you've given yourself permission to have done all of the things in writing that you've done up until that point. So company record books uh, are really important. The first thing they do, and we'll talk more about it in, in more specific terms in a minute, but company record books are the first thing they ask for in the event of a lawsuit or an audit. And if you can't present a pristine set of company records, um, then you may give them opposing counsel or the auditor from the IRS an opportunity to um, say, well, it's not really an, it, it's not really a separate entity from you. It's your alter ego. It's as if it was you. You're operating the entity as if it was you. And so we're going to disallow your uh, your business deductions and make all of that liability personal or uh, in the event of a lawsuit, remove the protections, pierce the corporate veil of the LLC and make you personally um, personally liable. So here's a quick story. A client of mine for whom we did some estate planning, uh, she and her partner had been in business for a long time, 10 or 12 years, uh, very successful business. And we looked at their company record books and there were none, essentially. They had uh, they'd gone to one of the large national do-it-yourself firms and paid $500 or something like that. And what they had was still their box with a binder and dividers and a floppy disk. They'd never done anything with it. So we said, fine, great. We created um, the, the operating agreement, the organizational meeting minutes, uh, stock certificates. And we went back and we forensically recreated annual meeting minutes for their company right back to the very beginning. So from the 14 or 12 or 14 years they'd already been in business, they had annual meeting minutes for each and every year since the inception of the business. Now, four months later, uh, my client got a call from the IRS or a notice from the IRS that she was being audited. And they said, okay, first thing they're gonna do is ask to see her company record books. So she took her company record books with her to the audit. 
And the examiner sat across the table and kind of looked down her glasses at my client and said, you don't happen to have company record books, do you? And my client said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And she presented this, this set of company records that we prepared for her. And the auditor from the IRS leafed through this, this beautiful binder with everything in it and said to my client, I've never seen nicer company record books ever, which was a great compliment for the quality of work that we do, but it also changed the, the tenor of the conversation between the auditor and the client, the uninformed taxpayer, to this. And a day or two later, no further action required, no additional taxes owed or because her company record books at the foundation were perfect. And I think you'll find that that both in an audit situation and in a lawsuit situation, it's much easier to convince the judge that this is a real LLC because it's been documented uh, and administered so correctly uh, rather than just your alter ego and, you know, oh yeah, I filed a... So what happens when you file an LLC and you get an EIN and you open up a bank account, most of us think, okay, we have an LLC, that's great, but we don't have the body of, of company records that can establish in a lawsuit or an audit that that's, it's actually a bona fide entity separate from us. So let's see some key distinctions around LLCs, single member versus multi-member. Okay, a single member LLC, let's say um, you as husband and wife, because husband and wife are one person under the law uh, or co-trustees of a trust considered to be one person under the law. And you create an LLC, let's say to put a rental property into an LLC that's owned by your trust. That's great. The LLC is owned by one entity, your trust. Even though there's husband and wife considered one person, that's a single member LLC. It has one owner. And what happens with a single member LLC is that it's treated as a disregarded entity for income tax reporting purposes. So any profit or loss coming from the activities of that LLC, say the rental incomes and the rental expenses will generate either a profit or a loss, that profit or loss will flow up through the LLC, a disregarded entity, through the trust, which is the same as husband and wife, or the same as a single grantor, and right onto your 1040 form on a Schedule C or whoever that kind of reporting of income from rentals belongs. Um, so it's very simple, doesn't increase or complicate your tax reporting, uh, other than to give your accountant the EIN, the employer identification number, or the tax ID number of the LLC, but the LLC does not itself file a separate tax return. But with multi-members, you have more than one member, more than one owner. Now you're in a partnership uh, situation where there's more than one owner and that profit or loss will be divided pro rata or equally among the different owners. Pro rata, if they have different ownership percentages, one's 20, one's 40, the other one's 40, okay? Um, then it's either uh, typically those profits or losses are distributed pro rata according to your ownership percentage. And then the LLC issues K-1s, right, for the distribution of profit or loss to the individual owner. So it does, it does complicate having a multi-member LLC, does complicate your tax uh, situation, your tax filing requirements a bit, but it also provides great creditor protection. Having more than one owner of an entity is really, really good uh, for asset protection purposes. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay, um, the difference between an LLC, a limited liability company, and a PLLC, that's a professional limited liability company. We're gonna talk about this in more detail here in just a moment. There's also such a thing as an IRA LLC, which is a um, uh, like a checkbook IRA, where you can actually take some IRA money 
from your brokerage account, bring it over into a self-directed IRA LLC that gives you checkbook control. And you can write a check from your IRA money, your funds, uh, to buy a house, for example, to improve a house, to receive the rents from the rental, to pay the expenses uh, for the rental property. And the net is your income uh, that's deferred, it's tax deferred. And then when you go to sell the property, all of the increase becomes part of the corpus of the IRA, basically. So IRA LLCs are pretty cool. And uh, if you're looking for another source of funds to invent in rental properties, for example, you might want to look to your IRA. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, state jurisdictions are very different um, state to state. So um, for example, Arizona, uh, Arizona is a pretty friendly uh, jurisdiction for LLCs. Wyoming and Delaware and uh, maybe a couple of others are even friendlier. So depending on the circumstance and the type of risk that we're managing, the type of enterprise that we're, that we're engaged in and the purposes of these LLCs, which we'll look into in a, uh, in a minute in more detail, the jurisdiction that you select for those can be quite important. And then the whole idea of multi-state taxation. So for example, I have a number of clients who live in California, but who have rental properties in Arizona. And all they're doing uh, from California is going online to, to their bank and uh, maybe paying a bill here or there, that sort of thing. In Arizona, that does not constitute um, uh, conducting business on behalf of a foreign corporation. But in California, it does. So California requires um, that the California resident who's doing some work around their rental properties, which are located in, in Arizona, they claim that income as California income, whereas Arizona in most cases, in many cases, according to the new LLC law, just doing banking um, uh, for maybe my Wyoming LLC sitting in, in Arizona does not constitute or require that that Wyoming LLC be reported or um, uh, that it be identified as a foreign corporation doing business in Arizona. So it's, it's interesting. There are some moving parts uh, that are different typically from situation to situation. And it would be good to talk with someone who knows the, the distinctions between the, uh, uh, between the different jurisdictions as we do. So if you have any questions about any of the things that we've talked about so far, go ahead and uh, schedule a free consultation with me. You can call the local number or the toll-free number. You can go directly to calendly.com slash Warner hyphen one and schedule a 15 or a 30 minute uh, consultation with me, no charge. Happy to chat with you. And we can set up these Calendly meetings either with a Zoom meeting, a phone call, or an office meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona. So uh, you get to choose how you wish to be served and how you wish to have those conversations with me. Uh, and then, of course, you can always email me at warner at lifeplanninginc.com. Any questions or thoughts uh, or concerns that you might have. So go ahead and feel free to reach out to us. Looking forward to meeting with meeting you and, and to chatting with you about what's important, what's on your mind. Okay, now we're going to pivot to LLC administration. Once you've got the LLC in place, what do you do with it? Well, the first thing, here, here are the legal requirements, at least in the state of Arizona. And what's interesting is that Arizona adopted the Uniform, the Uniform Limited Liability Act. The Uniform Limited Liability Act was created by the American Bar Association some years ago in Washington, D.C., and distributed to all of the state um, Supreme Courts, essentially, uh, who establish the rules uh, around the, uh, I'm sorry, it's the legislature, I'm sure, in, in combination with the courts, 
to set up these, these uh, rules and regulations around the administration of LLCs. So in Arizona, Arizona adopted its version of the Uniform Limited Liability Company Act, which has become the Arizona Limited Liability Company Act. Uh, and these are the legal requirements in the state of Arizona. I've not done a survey of all other states to see if these are the same requirements, but this is the requirement currently in the state of Arizona. Records to be kept. A limited liability company shall keep all of the following. A list of the names and addresses of each member and each manager. A copy of the articles of organization. The original articles of organization creating the entity and all amendments thereto. So if you change members, added a member, removed a member, changed managers, changed address, those kinds of things, all of those documents, all of those changes must be available um, at the office to be inspected. And then number three, most importantly, a copy of all current and prior written operating agreements and amendments thereto. So this is basically saying your company must have an operating agreement. And uh, we'll get into the ALCA uh, compliance around operating agreements for Arizona entities. Um, the same will be true for many other states as well. There are some onerous outcomes that are the default outcomes within the language of the Arizona Limited Liability Company Act, which fortunately we can draft around. We can say, even though it says this, we want it to say that, and that's okay as long as it's not breaking certain rules. So drafting and preparing an operating agreement that protects members uh, from each other, actually, um, in many cases, it's possible to draft around so that we're not stuck with the default, which we'll talk about in a minute, the default provisions, which can be really bad, really hairy. And uh, that's what would happen if you don't have an operating agreement. Uh, it would just default to the state's version of what's going to happen. And then, of course, records of members' obligation to make capital contributions, a copy of the company's tax returns, and a company, a copy of the company's financial statements for the past three years. So these are the legal requirements in the state of Arizona. They'll vary from state to state, um, but it's important that as we create the entity for you in the state in which you reside, uh, that we look into those, um, uh, to how that state has adopted the Uniform Limited Liability Company Act. So let's talk about meeting minutes. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm a small company. I'm a one man, one woman band. Uh, why would I keep company records? Well, so the Arizona Limited Liability Company Act and presumably many other states require an operating agreement. But currently, unlike a year or two or three ago, uh, Arizona does not require annual meeting minutes. Uh, but prudence would suggest that you may want to go ahead and keep these minutes uh, in case they're, you know, you're in a lawsuit and somebody's trying to pierce your company veil by having meeting minutes. Uh, it's an opportunity for your members, first of all, to, to confer with each other and to agree on the actions that are going to be taken by the, uh, by the LLC. And it can also help to convince the court that the LLC was properly formed and properly administered as a separate entity from the owners. Okay, this is the, this is the really important thing. And it just shows evidence of agreement among the owners. So although annual meeting minutes and ongoing meeting minutes are not required, strictly speaking, it might be a good idea according to some, and I would tend to agree. So if you have any questions around the administration of your LLC, in other words, your company record books, keeping meeting minutes, making sure that your operating agreement is ALCA compliant, please do uh, reach out and schedule an appointment and we'll chat about it, okay? I'll be, be delighted to walk you through that and see how we can help, okay?
All right, next, we're going to talk about LLCs for rental properties. Um, most people who have rental properties end up putting them into LLCs. This is so that if someone slips and falls on your property, um, uh, your personal liability is limited to what's in the LLC. So here are the top do's and don'ts. Don't, and this is not legal advice, okay? We're, I'm just talking, I'm exercising my First Amendment rights to free speech here, okay? And I'm saying, do this, don't do that. These are the top do's and don'ts. So please don't come after me and tell, tell me that I'm giving legal advice because I'm not. But here's wisdom, okay? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. In other words, if you've got five rental properties worth $2 million in, the, in, in total, if you put them all into one bucket, into one LLC, somebody slips and falls on one property, their, their maximum reward and your maximum liability is what's in the LLC. So slip and fall on one property and they can ultimately get all five properties, that could be a problem. So you may, you're going to want to manage your risk by perhaps putting uh, each of these free and clear properties in their own LLCs. Now, let's say some of my clients have dozens of rental properties and they may have some properties that have only $30,000 in equity, others that have $60,000 in equity, and others that have $100,000 in equity. Now, if you put three properties that have $30,000 in equity together in one, your total liability is $90,000, right? Uh, if you've got uh, two 60s, right, two properties with $60,000 in equity each, um, your maximum exposure would be $120,000. If they were successful in, in suing one and getting everything that's in the, in the LLC. If you have a property that's got 100,000 in equity, 300,000 in equity, some of these properties have five and 500,000 to a million dollars in equity, you're not going to want to put five of those into one LLC, are you? You want to ba balance that risk. Um, so that's a conversation that you would just have pencil it out and see what your tolerance for pain is, see what your tolerance for how much you'd be willing to lose. Uh, if somebody slipped and fell on one of your properties, would you want them to get just that one? Would you want them to get a second one, a third one, maybe all five? So that's a, an important conversation. Another really common mistake, and it drives everybody crazy, me, accountants, et cetera, is the rental income. Even though you've got an LLC, the rental income goes into your personal account and all the expenses for the LLC property, for the rental property, go through your personal account. Wrong. Bad. Don't do that. Because basically... Um, your, your, um, it's, it's a contradiction in terms, your actions, right? You've created the LLC, presumably you're going to operate as an LLC, but the reality is that you're operating as if it was your own piggy bank, basically. And that's probably, uh, one of the least desirable things that, that can happen if you're in the, uh, in the midst of a lawsuit or an audit, um, do set up separate LLC bank accounts for each of your LLCs up to a certain point. OK, um, if you've got three properties, three bank accounts, that's OK. Uh, once you start to go north of five properties, sometimes, oftentimes, my clients will create a sixth LLC or another LLC, which is the property management LLC. So the other five LLCs own the properties, but the management company owns the leases receives all of the income and pays all of the expenses for each property, which is a piece of cake. You can have it all in one place, in one account, using a software program like QuickBooks, where if you enter uh, rental income, then you have a drop-down window as to which property it is. Then rental expense, you have a drop-down window for which, 
which uh, property, which LLC that expense or that income is allocated to. So it makes keeping the records really, really easy. Uh, you wouldn't believe some of the beautiful spreadsheets I've seen in Excel that, that are non-property uh, management with QuickBooks or some solution like that. And they've got stuff all over the place. It works, but it's a lot of work. So um, you might want to consider um, setting up uh, a management company to receive all the rents and pay all the expenses and then let the LLCs do just that, own the, the property and that's it, okay? And then you're gonna want to uh, use the LLC's full name on all of your correspondence. So your, your lease will be in the name of your LLC, um, your bank accounts, of course, your correspondence, your business cards, uh, all of that will have the name of your LLC, again, to demonstrate that you're keeping it on the straight and narrow. You're not commingling business with personal, it's all business, okay? Um, as I mentioned, if you have multiple properties and LLCs, you might want to consider a property management company where all the expenses and income go through one account. QuickBooks makes it easy for a profit and loss statement at the end of every month, quarter, and year. Uh, the rental LLCs only own the properties and uh, the management LLC uh, manages the leases, the revenues, and the expenses. So that is it. Uh, on this segment, if you want to talk more about your particular circumstance, and your rental properties or your operating companies or what have you, uh, we can help you sort through uh, the best structure, the most elegant structure and the most protective structure too, so that we don't leave uh, too much exposed uh, to creditors, judgments, lawsuits, and potentially divorces, okay? So if you have questions about this segment of today's podcast, go ahead and call, schedule some time with me, go to my calendar uh, or email me with your, uh, your questions and your comments directly at warner at legalconcierge.net, okay? Thanks. Um, does an LLC protect your personal assets? Um, thank you, Mount Soul, for the question. Um, typically, an LLC is designed to be used when there is a business purpose um, and not so much designed to protect personal property. So the short answer is no, the LLC does, is not intended or designed to protect personal assets. But here's something that is sort of a, a gray area between the yes and the no answer. Let's say that you buy a property, a home, a residence, which will be your primary residence, but your intention is to remodel it and sell it in a few years, two, three, five years, sell it down the road for a profit. Now that arguably is a business purpose. If it's legitimate, then sure, put it into an LLC. And in effect, you can put your personal residence into an LLC um, limiting your liability to what's in that LLC should someone slip and fall. So if somebody came to a party at your house one day, slipped, fell, broke their what have you, and uh, sued, uh, the maximum they could get would be uh, what's in the property, that personal residence. So hopefully that answers that. What are the pros and cons of LLCs for rental properties? So the pros are protection. Um protection from creditors, judgments, lawsuits, and divorces, limiting your liability because yeah, that LLC is a separate entity, okay? Uh, it's separate from you. It's not as if it was you or you're, you're not the owner. If you own property, rental properties in your own name, someone comes to that rental property, slips and falls, breaks something, and sues the owner, uh, you may well be better off having them sue the LLC, limiting your liability to what's in that LLC versus suing you the owner if it was in your name or in your trust and they sue the owner in theory they could get everything that you own or that's owned by your trust 
because remember you as trustee and you as uh, an individual are one and the same person. So uh, revocable living trusts do not protect your assets. If an asset is in your name, it is also not protected from your creditors. Okay, that's a great, um, uh, great question. And another, how to avoid capital gains tax on rental properties. Well, this is a this is a great question. Um, 1031 exchanges are technique is a technique that's used often where you have a certain period of time to roll over the proceeds from the sale of one commercial property into another. Um, so that's something to consider as well. There are ways to mitigate capital gains tax by by deferring them, essentially. Uh, I'm not sure that we can do away with capital gains tax on rental properties altogether. Uh, but we'll be talking about capital gains tax issues here um, in the coming weeks because uh, there is, um, you know, there's they've been talking, the new administration has been talking about doing away with a step up in cost basis. And we'll talk about that more later in more detail. But that can be pretty honor. So thank you for your questions in this segment. If you have any questions about any of this, go ahead and reach out and contact us. OK, look forward to, to speaking with you. Now we're going to look at hybrid LLCs. What is a hybrid LLC? I don't think you plug it in in your garage at night and recharge it. Um, but there are different forms of LLCs, like professional limited liability companies, a PLLC, a professional LLC, where the shares or the ownership interest can only be voted and exercised by someone who is appropriately licensed. So if it's a doctor who owns a PLLC and something happens to that position, um, their spouse or their trust, their trustee. So here, let's go to the bottom uh, uh, bullet point here where the trust and operating agreements correspond. Uh, a PLLC can only be owned by a person and by a person who's got a certain license, say a doctor's license, a lawyer's license, a realtor or something like that. But when you have a properly drafted PLLC operating agreement and a properly drafted living trust, these two documents correspond uh, to each other and correlate to each other, giving the trustee the power to appoint someone who is appropriately licensed to operate the PLLC until they can wrap it up or to continue to operate it moving forward without limitation. So uh, those are the kind of the moving parts with professional uh, LLCs, PLLCs. It's important that the uh, upon death of the of the professional uh, that there be some way for the survivors to continue to operate the company and and not just have that blow up. IRA LLCs. Did you know that you can invest in virtually anything in your IRA? Most monies in your IRA, your four hundred one k, is invested in Wall Street or company shares or something like that. But the law says that you can own anything in your IRA except life insurance and collectibles. So you can't own life insurance. That's pretty straightforward. You have to own that individually. Um, but collectibles. So you cannot, uh, an IRA cannot own a wine collection, but your IRA can own a winery, okay? Um, your IRA can invest in virtually everything but collectibles and life insurance. So keep that in mind. A third party uh, retirement plan administrator is required because they are the middle person between you and your self-directed IRA activities and the IRS, right? So you have to report to the administrator and then the administrator reports your profits, losses, income, you know, all that stuff. They report it to the IRS. You don't. With IRA LLCs and self-directed IRAs, there are lots and lots of rules and restrictions. So for example, if you buy a rental property 
in your IRA. So you take your IRA money um, with a brokerage firm and you transfer it to the third party administrator with whom you set up a self-directed IRA, perhaps in the form of a, an IRA LLC, which gives you checkbook control. In other words, you don't have to go to the third party IRA administrator and say, please write a check for $350,000 to buy the rental property, uh, $10,000 for the contractor to replace the pavement. You can do that yourself from your own checkbook. But it's really important to follow the rules that govern self-directed IRAs. So for example, did you know that you are prohibited uh, in a rental property that's owned by your IRA to replace a light bulb because that's actually a contribution. It's an enhancement. It's an addition. It's an improvement to your IRA asset. And in theory, you cannot do that yourself. You can't paint uh, the property because that is an IRA contribution. Um, your only IRA contribution can be made through the maximum allowable every year through the third party administrator into your IRA LLC. Okay, so um, you've got to keep this in mind. Now, you may not be able to, to do the work and um, uh, your son, daughter, father, all that may not be able to, but, but those related to you uh, on the horizontal plane as opposed to the vertical plane, you could hire as contractors and things like that. But there's even restrictions as to who, uh, who you can hire. Uh, can you hire this family member? No, but can you hire that family member? Yes. So it's very important before you go into an IRA LLC situation that you know all of the moving parts and you know what are your prohibited actions, actions that you cannot take. Otherwise, you spoil the IRA's um, qualify. You, it can't qualify as an IRA anymore. Um, but as I mentioned, a wide range of investment possibilities. So if you want to get out of um, uh, the stock market, for example, uh, it's very easy to get involved. Uh, in making a variety of investments. It could be hard money loans. You could invest in a startup company. Uh, you could buy a winery, uh, but no collections, right? No life insurance and no collectibles. Okay, so if you have any questions about the IRA LLC, give us a shout, um, give us a call, go to my Calendly and set up a, maybe a half an hour conversation about this, or just send your questions, comments um, to my email address at warner at legal-concierge.net, okay? Thanks. All right, so let's look at LLCs and asset protection. LLCs can play a major role in protecting assets while you're alive. So a couple of different structures. This is this structure does not protect your assets, okay? Uh, your revocable living trust is at the top of the, the food chain. The revocable living trust owns internally your house, bank and brokerage accounts, your personal possessions, and your business interests. So your operating company, your limited partnership, your rental properties, uh, investments, etc., would be held owned by LLCs, which are owned by your trust. So what's interesting is that you don't, you don't own the LLCs, you control the trust that owns and controls the LLC. So it's kind of interesting. This will avoid probate. This is a simple, basic probate avoidance structure, but it does not protect your assets. It does internally. So if you look at the operating company or the rental property, the rental property is in a properly um, formed and administered LLC. Someone slips and falls, your, your maximum liability is limited to what's in the LLC. They could take that property. So an LLC properly drafted and administered can pro provide great internal liability protection against slips and falls, but it provides zero asset protection against external liability. So let's say that that you or a spouse uh, who are the trustees and the trustors, the creators of this revocable living trust, get into a car accident. 
and uh, not you, but another couple, uh, you know, injures or worse kills people in a car accident. And now they're being sued individually. And because the husband and wife are one person and they are the same person as the trustees of the trust, they can come right through that revocable living trust and they can take everything that, that the trust owns. Okay. Um, so your revocable living trust does not protect your assets while you're alive. Your revocable trust has to become irrevocable upon your death in order to begin protecting assets. Okay. So something very important to keep in mind. There's a distinction there. Revocable trusts do not protect your assets. Multiply owned LLCs, however, can protect your assets because there's more than one member. Um, let's, we'll, we'll talk about this in a moment. Having more than one owner of an LLC can provide some great creditor protection. We'll, we'll talk about how here in just a moment. Um, multiply owned LLCs in Arizona and other states that have adopted the new LLC law or their version of it. Um, in Arizona, they say that every multiply owned LLC must have, must have, not should have or can have, but must have an ALCA, Arizona Limited Liability Company Act, compliant operating agreement, okay? That's just the law. It says that it must happen that way. So uh, if you are a member and owner of a multiply owned LLC and you do not have an ALCA compliant uh, operating agreement, you might want to give us a call and we can uh, we can prepare one for you, okay? So that you're within the, uh, the requirements, uh, you're meeting the requirements of the law. Now, there are some drawbacks under the new LLC law. For example, if you and I own an LLC, you own 90%, I own 10%. In, and we, we are beginning to um, um, distribute everything, just to dissolve the LLC and to distribute the proceeds. All pre-wind-up uh, assets and revenues have to be shared, not 90-10, not pro-rata according to our ownership percentages, but 50-50 between us, or if there was a third member, a third, a third, a third. So, wow. I mean, how many of us know who own multiply owned entities that, that as part of the wrap up, as part of the wind up of the company, that those, uh, those distributions do not occur pro rata. They occur um, equally among the members. That's a huge drawback, but one that can be drafted around. We can actually draft around most of these honors provisions and the new LLC law um, so that we can avoid their uh, negative outcomes. Okay, let's put it that way. So another drawback is that members can sue each other for even frivolous reasons, for anything undisclosed. Hey, you didn't tell me that you have to pick your child up every Tuesday at school at 2.30. That takes you out of the game, undisclosed, and I'm suing you for damages or what have you. Uh, that's possible under the, uh, the new LLC law unless we draft around it, unless we say specifically what you can sue another member for and what you cannot sue another member for. Uh, and as I mentioned, the wind-up distributions are not paid out pro rata. They're paid out uh, on a per capita basis, okay? Not 90-10, but a third, a third, a third. Um, multiply owned LLCs have uh, asset protection and creditor protection built into them. And this is because it's harder to get a charging order or a judgment to stick against an entity that's owned by more than one person. So let's say one of the members, one of the owners injured someone in a car accident and got sued personally. Now they can get after everything else that that, that um, member owns, bank accounts and houses and stuff like that, but it'll be harder for the, the judgment creditor to get 
uh, everything that's owned by this multiply owned LLC because they wouldn't just be injuring you, the one who caused the lawsuit, but they'd be injuring the other party, which had nothing to do with the lawsuit. So this is why it's harder to get a charging order or a judgment. It's also, I'm told by attorneys um, uh, that, that it's better to have an LLC than a corporation. And this is because in this kind of a circumstance with a charging order or a judgment, a corporation has physical shares, 100 shares. That's a piece of paper that says I've got 100 of these shares of stock in a company. These shares are an object. They're actually something tangible that can be taken from you in a lawsuit or a judgment. Ownership interests in an LLC and ownership interest is not a share. It's not stock or a share of stock. It's an ownership interest. It's an ephemeral idea. It's a percentage. And you can't actually take possession of a percentage, right? So I think this is why um, the opinions that I've heard expressed anyway by lawyers, uh, and I'm not a lawyer, but lawyers have expressed this opinion that it's often better to have the LLC form as being more protective in the event of a judgment than a corporation because they can take the stock of your corporation, but they can't take a percentage of ownership from you, okay? And uh, the main idea here is that a multiply owned LLC protects the assets that it owns because a judgment against one uh, would also be harming the other. And that's usually not cricket. That's not okay uh, under current law. All right. So here is a more protective structure. Uh, remember, it's not the, um, it's not the, uh, the revocable living trust that owns the entities. This is probate avoidance. Yes, it'll avoid probate. The, the, the trust will avoid probate on every asset that it owns and controls. So that's a good thing. And this revocable trust becomes irrevocable upon death. So that's a good thing. It, it protects assets for your children, but not during your lifetimes. So this is a more protective structure. And let me just say that when we're talking about asset protection structures, there's no guarantee. There is no absolute assurance that whatever actions that we might take will prevent a creditor judgment from actually getting something from you. Okay. And it's not designed to do that. It's simply designed to, to slow down the process a little bit so that they can't just come and take everything that you own. There's perhaps a bit more of a solid standing or footing for negotiation and for that sort of thing. Um, so there's no absolute assurance that your assets will be protected no matter what we do. You can only do this kind of asset protection planning when the coast is clear, when there is no action currently ongoing, there's no lawsuit currently ongoing, and there is no anticipation or reasonable expectation of a lawsuit arising from something that happened in the past. Oh, yes, some employee left. They weren't happy. They were disgruntled. I think they might come back and, and do something. You can't plan then. It's too late. Okay. So the only time you can do this kind of planning is when the coast is clear. So here you'll see in blue uh, is featured the multi-member holding company. It's owned by more than one person. So in this example, it's owned 90% by your revocable living trust and 10% by an intentionally defective grantor trust, which is just an irrevocable trust that you create to be the owner of the other percentage of the entity. But this could very well be 50-50 owners, their respective trusts, each owned 50% of the holding company. It could be uh, an individual's trust for 90% and their two adult children for 5% apiece. Now, this is also a good structure, a good strategy for, um, for transferring some of the income generated by the enterprise owned by the multiply owned holding company to your children. Uh, and that may be of some value to push some of that, uh, that income out to a lower income tax bracket and to begin paying, who knows, for your children's education, for your grandchildren's education, those kinds of things. So 
um, that irrevocable trust, although you can't benefit from it, your children and grandchildren can benefit from it. So it could be a great way to take 10% of uh, your, your income and put it to a different use to your children and grandchildren. So again, the multi-member holding company, because it's owned by more than one person, can provide an effective firewall from external liability. You know, when you, one of the owners of the uh, multiply owned holding company injures someone in a car accident and gets sued, uh, they could probably uh, take other things from that individual that's owned just by them or their living trust, but it'll be harder to get a judgment or a charging order to stick against a multiply owned holding company. And in some jurisdictions like Wyoming, which is a popular one, or Delaware, you can keep the ownership of the multi-member holding company private. So you don't have to disclose who the owner is. So someone driving by, looking at your enterprise, your business or your rental property, sees that it's owned by ABC uh, Arizona LLC, which is owned by your Wyoming holding company. Then they go to Wyoming holding company, to the Wyoming Secretary of State and say, who owns this LLC? They won't tell them. Uh, it would take a court order or a, a subpoena, basically, uh, to get the Corporation Commissioner, the Secretary of State in Wyoming, to disclose the ownership information. So um, privacy, protection, you know, these are things that we're able to do. Um, but again, there's no 100% assurance that any of these strategies will work. Uh, let's see, so final thoughts. So if you have any questions about the asset protection side of this, go ahead and give us a call, schedule some time with me. Go to my Calendly, uh, my calendar, www.calendly.com front slash Warner hyphen one or write me an email at uh, warner at lifeplanninginc.com or warner at legal-concierge.net. Got that? Great. Thank you. Oh, and please take a moment to uh, like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. So it would be really great. Just check the subscribe button. We won't bug you, but it really does help us to, uh, to uh, expand and to find more viewers, et cetera. So please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you. I did see one question pop up that I'd like to take a look at again. How much liability insurance for rental property? Uh, as much as you can comfortably afford. So, you know, you're gonna have liability insurance just like you do for a rental property, just like you do on your personal residence. The rental property liability insurance might be a little higher because it's an entity, but that's it's not gonna be a bunch higher, just a little bit higher. And then you'll probably also want to get um, some uh, some liability umbrella insurance money, uh, so a, a, an umbrella insurance policy to provide a pool of money to pay for lawyers and perhaps to pay awards in the event of a lawsuit. So then people ask how much. I mean, a $1 million umbrella policy um, doesn't cost a ton. It's a few hundred bucks. Uh, many people that I know, I have a higher limit. Other people have a higher limit. You know, $3 million is a pool of money to pay for lawyers to defend your structures and then perhaps to pay um, to pay awards and judgments and that sort of thing, okay? Can you use IRA money to buy a rental property? Yes, you sure can. If you pop back up to um, the section that we did a little earlier and we're going to index this, this podcast so that you can go right to IRA LLCs, um, uh, yes, you sure can. And I'm going to invite you to, uh, to, to circle back once we get this posted up on YouTube and you can go to the IRA LLC section and it will explain all of that. So thank you for that question. The answer is yes, you can buy rental properties from your IRA. Okay, good. So here are just a few final thoughts. You know, the process, if you chose to um, take some steps in this direction, get some information that you can use. And, you know, our, our initial consultations are always at no cost. 
no cost, no obligation. We'll engage you in conversation, discuss your circumstances, um, review all of your existing documentation, give you as much legal information as would be appropriate to make fully informed decisions for yourself. Remember, we're not lawyers. We don't give legal opinions of any kind, but we can give you enough legal information to lead you, to give you enough information to make fully informed decisions. So it's actually quite a dynamic and empowering process to work with us because you'll know exactly what your options are and why you might want to choose one over another. Um, the most important thing, too, is that that we create, that your documents that are created, whether we create them or someone else creates them, I'm going to take a step back. Free consultation. You can use the information we provide you any way you want. You can go to someone else and tell them what you need and what you want. We'd, of course, love to earn that business, but you're free to do whatever you want to do with the information that we provide you. There's no obligation. Okay. So uh, if you do engage us, then we would gather all your information, create legal documents that accurately reflect your circumstances, your goals, your wants, your needs, uh, coordinate the document signing, and then ensure that everything is implemented properly. When you do estate planning, you want to make sure that everything you own is in the name of your trust, right? Because the trust can only avoid probate on assets that it owns by title or by beneficiary designation. So your house, we change the, the deed, the owner of your house from you to you as trustees of your trust. Uh, we change the beneficiary designations of your life insurance and your IRAs over into the trust. So that the trust can protect these assets for future generations. And then that's called funding the trust, making sure that everything is pointed to the trust, either by name or by beneficiary designation. And then finally, you know, the truth is that most people will never get this kind of planning done, life planning, estate planning, business planning, asset protection planning, without a catalyst, without something happening in their life, like a death of someone near and dear to them. Uh, I equate that to a bomb going off right next to your chair or maybe even under your chair. You have to go through probate, you know, from experience that you never want to do that to your family. So yeah, you need to get a trust. Um, uh, so just lost my train of thought. So we'll come back to that. Oh, so most people will never get this done because they don't know who to go to. They don't know who to trust. They don't know where to start, what questions to ask. They don't know what they don't know. So having a friend or a trusted associate or professional advisor whom they know, like, and trust to say, hey, if you haven't gotten this done, we've got someone who does a great job, makes the process easy, it's comprehensive, cost-effective, all of that. Um, it's, it's just keep in mind, once you get this planning done, you could make a huge change in the lives of people that you know, like, and trust and their families by encouraging them to talk to someone competent to get this kind of planning done. So become an advocate, become a life planning advocate. Okay, uh, that's what I have for today. Uh, it's coming up on just about an hour. Uh, I have this internal clock. I know I could go shorter or longer than an hour, but here we are 55 minutes in. Um, any other questions, Toby, that uh, I could could uh, uh, respond to before we go? So keep in mind, like, share, and subscribe. Please take a moment to do that now. I'd be so appreciative. If you're watching, just click the like, click the subscribe. That would be really cool. And if you have any other questions or if there's any way that we can help you, just reach out, give a phone call, go to my calendar, schedule some time with me, either Zoom um, on the phone or in person at the office or send me your questions at warner to warner at legal-concierge.net, okay? Um, thank you very kindly. Appreciate your participation. Hope this has been helpful to you. Uh, we will see you next time. Thanks. Happy Thanksgiving, too. Bye. Thank you for joining the Legal Concierge podcast hosted by Warner Lewis. 
Please subscribe and leave a comment or question regarding your own legal situation, or ideas for future shows. Share this podcast with your family and friends so they can find answers regarding legal situations and solutions, too. Check the show notes for links and resources, and please come back again next week.